Let's pray together. Lord, we thank and praise you for the magnificent Savior you've provided and so great a salvation in him. How different our lives are and how better our lives are here on this earth. And one day we know for certain, because of the Lord Jesus and your grace, that we shall see you and we shall enjoy all the things you've graced heaven with. But Lord, we confess, heaven will mostly be heaven because Jesus will be there. And so we pray that as we begin this preaching series in the great epistle to the Romans, that we would afresh and anew see the magnitude and the great beauty of this salvation which is ours in Christ. May you be honored and glorified as has been prayed. Hide me and magnify Jesus. And I pray this with my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always a somewhat tenuous proposition to ask yourself if you could only have one book of the Bible, if you, for any reason, could only have one book of the 66 books, uh, what book might you want? There are many possible answers, of course, with good reasons for each, but as I've reflected upon that over the years of being a Christian, If I could only have one book of God's Word, it would be the book of Romans, a book that gives us a scope and a theological understanding of God's salvation of sinners in Christ. Some years ago, I embarked on a challenge that I call Route 66, a famous route in the United States, a highway. And Route 66 years ago for me was to preach a single sermon on each of the 66 books of the Bible. And so what I'm going to share with you tonight is my Route 66 sermon on the book of Romans as an introduction to a series of preaching through Romans verse by verse. In the will of the Lord, next Sunday in the morning, we'll begin at Romans 1 and verse 1, and we'll go through verse 7. And then in the will of the Lord, a week from this evening, Sunday evening next, we'll pick that up at Romans 1.8, and we'll do that. Through, as we progress through the whole of the book, uh, both morning and evening, we'll be looking at Romans verse by verse. So this is the Route 66 uh, message for the book of Romans. Romans, I want to point out to you, stands first and at the head of all the other epistles of the New Testament. This is so, I believe, because it is the systematic tracing of the gospel from condemnation to justification to sanctification to glorification. It is also an explanation of God's flawless program, both for Jews and for Gentiles. The book concludes with very practical exhortations for the outworking of imputed righteousness within believers. While the four Gospels present the words and the works of Christ... While the book of Acts presents the birth and the first steps of the baby church, the book of Romans presents the humongous significance of Christ's sacrificial death. As I said, Romans is placed first in order among all of the New Testament epistles because the other epistles all build upon the doctrinal foundation which Romans lays down. It's safe to say that the book of Romans has influenced 
the subsequent history of the church more than any other New Testament epistle. Romans has 16 chapters. They divide this way. Chapters 1 through 11, doctrine. Chapters 12 through 16, behavior. 1 through 11, doctrine. 12 through 16, behavior. Or, another way to look at the whole book, chapters 1 through 8, God's righteousness revealed. Chapters 9 through 11, God's righteousness vindicated. Chapters 12 to 16, God's righteousness applied. Let me say that again. Chapters 1 through 8, God's righteousness revealed. Chapters 9 through 11, God's righteousness vindicated. And chapters 12 through 16, God's righteousness applied. Or one last possible overview of the book. Chapters 1 through 3, sin. Chapters 3 through 5, salvation. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11, sovereignty. And chapters 12 through 16, service. All S's. 1 to 3, sin. 3 to 5, salvation. 6 to 8, sanctification. 9 through 11, sovereignty. 12 through 16, service. There are so many choice and beloved passages in the book of Romans. It's challenging to select only two key passages. By the way, that is what I tried to do for the other 65 books in the Route 66 series, to only focus in on two key passages per book. It's difficult in the book of Romans to select only two. There are some key theological terms in the book. Righteousness, faith, law, sin. Each of these appear at least 60 times in this epistle. It does seem apparent, though, that the theme of the whole book of Romans is presented in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Would you go there with me? Romans 1, 16 to 17, it would seem clear that the theme of the whole book is encapsulated in 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the theme of Romans. God's righteousness being revealed in God's salvation. God's righteousness being revealed in his salvation. We must notice that God's salvation is built on God's righteousness and not vice versa. God's salvation is built on his righteousness. God, of course, is eternally righteous. This moved him to provide salvation for sinners who are a far cry from righteous. Will you notice also with me that this righteous foundation with a salvation built upon it could be viewed sort of like a house. 
that the righteousness of God is the foundation and the salvation of God that reveals the righteousness of God, the salvation of God is like a house built on the foundation of God's righteousness. And this house built on the foundation of God's righteousness has a name written all over it. And that name is the gospel. The gospel is written all over the house of salvation that sits on the foundation of God's righteousness. Again, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I've taught you before that the gospel is defined by the scriptures. We should always let the scriptures inform the scriptures. We should always have the scriptures be the commentary on the scriptures. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, the gospel is defined. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it comes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. This is the gospel. The good news, the gospel news, is that Christ died for sins and arose. Will you notice, please, that both Christ's death and Christ's resurrection were predicted by the Old Testament Scriptures. See it there? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Skipping down. And that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Oh yes, Jesus Christ, Messiah's death, was predicted by multiple Old Testament prophecies, as was his bodily resurrection from the dead, predicted by the Old Testament prophecies. Will you notice that the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel to be complete is the good news that Christ died for sins, but also the good news that he arose. We must include both as we herald the gospel that we're not ashamed of. That Jesus Christ has died for sins, but also that Jesus Christ has arisen from the dead. And so we see that the gospel, the death of Messiah, predicted by the Old Testament, the resurrection of Messiah, predicted by the Old Testament. But then there's some proofs in this definition of 1 Corinthians 15, some proofs that Jesus actually died for our sins and some proofs that Jesus actually bodily raised from the dead. After the question and answer session last Sunday night, a dear brother came up to me and he's witnessing to a person who's in really into a kissing cousin of Buddhism. Our believing brother has a friend who is into the kissing cousin of Buddhism. And this kissing cousin of Buddhism person said to our believer from this fellowship, you know, Jesus Christ didn't really die. That was myth. Looked like he died, but he was resuscitated, and then he went on to India to live in India until he died. No, no, no. Jesus Christ died, and there's proof. 
For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. The Roman soldiers in the Roman Empire oversaw the crucifixions of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. They knew when a victim on a cross was really dead. And don't you think that when the authorities in the Roman Empire had basically said, this troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth, you be sure he's executed. You can be sure that that was their orders, as was their orders to guard his tomb, to lay a cord of Rome, a seal, into molten wax at first that hardened and put that around the seam of the stone of the uh, tomb of Jesus Christ so that it would not be broken or tampered with. No one would steal the body. Those Roman soldiers, if they allowed Jesus Christ's body to be stolen and to perpetrate a hoax that he really rose from the dead, they would have been killed. And actually they were killed when he rose bodily from the dead under the miraculous power of the Father. And so the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. They buried him because they knew he was dead. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. The proof that Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected from the dead was that he appeared to two individuals at a time, to roughly 10 individuals next, and then to over 500 people at once. They saw him alive after they saw him die. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of which Paul states in the key verses of Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the gospel of which Paul was not ashamed. May we never be ashamed of this gospel. The key verse Rene Burroughs has beautifully put on our bulletin board for the next several months. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And so it is this gospel which at the same time reveals God's righteousness, but it also imparts God's righteousness to believing sinners. It is this magnificent gospel which can only be received and appropriated and activated by faith in Christ's person, and Christ's work. That's what it means. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, watch now, from faith to faith. This is saying that this gospel, which can be received, and this gospel, which can be appropriated, and this gospel, which can be activated to change and revolutionize and transform our believing lives, is through faith in Christ's person, and work. Remember I said that the metaphor or the word picture we could use that the foundation of a house is God's righteousness. And salvation is this house that is built on God's righteousness. And all over this house of salvation is written the precious name, the gospel. And so as we go back to that word picture of the house, we see in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that God's salvation is like a lovely house, big enough for believing Jews to live in, big enough for believing Gentiles to live in. It's even big enough for everyone to believe in. 
And in this lovely large house called Salvation with gospel written all over it, it sits securely on the sure foundation of God's righteousness. This foundation is not compromised. This foundation is not cracked or faulty. This foundation is undiluted and undiminished. Nothing was given up by the foundation in order to build the big, lovely house of salvation upon it. There is only one door into this big, lovely house of salvation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who enter this house will enter through him. His person, his work, make for a perfectly suitable door into the big and lovely house of salvation with gospel written all over it. And the person, any person, who walks through this door does so by faith, trust. But not faith in faith, not trust in trust, but as Brother Anthon mentioned in the song time, faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to bring us safely from reprobate sin to righteous obedience to God, to bring us safely from this earth with all of its flaws and sin curse to a beautiful paradise we call heaven. Yes, this salvation could be compared to a lovely large house. With one door into this house, the Lord Jesus Christ, person and work, And the person walks into this house of salvation by placing their full, complete trust onto the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, the door. In this house, there are no windows ajar or in disrepair. No one can climb through any window at night. And there are no other doors into this house. No side door, no back door, just one door, Jesus. And that's why Romans 1, 16 and 17, again, the key verses of the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What a Savior, and how great is salvation. This metaphor, this word picture of a house, this house has a welcome sign. Actually, it has more than one welcome sign, but it reads the gospel. If you look at this house as a mailman, the name on the mailbox of the house is the gospel. If you look at this house as a foundation inspector, a building inspector, the name on the foundation is the righteousness of God. If you look at this house as a property tax assessor, the name on the walls and on the roof and on the deed of this house, the name is the gospel. And if you look at the front door, the only door of the house, right by the doorbell, you'll read the name, the gospel. This house is all about the gospel. That's why churches that have abandoned the gospel have abandoned the heart and the horizon of God. They may grow like Joel Osteen's church is growing in states. But when you abandon the gospel, God's blessing is not upon a local church. 
judgment someday. May they repent. Yes, this house, this salvation built upon the righteous foundation of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, that's why we must stay true, brothers and sisters, in this assembly and all the branches of this assembly into the community and all the branches out of this assembly to our mission fields, through our missionaries. What a wonderful address this morning from our dear brother. We must be sure that within the ministries of this local church and by extension through the extension of our prayers and our love and our giving, financial giving, that the gospel is the main thing, that Jesus Christ is the door into the house and everybody knows it, and that the foundation of the house is the righteousness of God being revealed in that salvation. And so I want to unpack further this rich concept. God's salvation of a person has three tenses grammatically. A person is saved, that's past tense. A person is saved from the penalties of sin. But there's more to God's salvation. It's not just a past tense blessing of being saved from the penalties of sin, but there's also being saved in the present, the constant present of walking with God. And the person who is saved in the present has the benefit of being saved from the power of sin and from the pleasure of sin. We do not have to sin. Sometimes we do. We do not have to take pleasure in sin. Sometimes we do. But God's salvation of the person who believes in his son is a past tense blessing. The person is saved from the penalties of sin. It's a present tense blessing. The person is saved from the power of sin and from the pleasure of sin. But ah, there's a future dimension to our salvation in Christ. The person who is saved will be saved. Future tense. One day, the believing person will be saved from the presence of sin. This is the full-orbed, the full, complete picture of this magnificent salvation, the house that's built on the foundation of God's righteousness that has one door into it, the Lord Jesus Christ, person and work, that has the gospel written all over it. This wonderful salvation has a past tense. We're delivered from the penalties of our sin, a present tense. We're delivered from the pleasures and the power of sin and has a future tense that we will be one day saved from the presence of sin. No sin in heaven. None. Aren't we looking forward to that? This, my friends, is the salvation full and free to us but cost the Godhead everything. The salvation that God so graciously gives through his son's person and his son's work What a magnificent, big house. God used the Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther to set into place the Protestant Reformation. And it was Romans 1, verse 17, which was the key to the Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther's conversion. I'll read it, verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Listen to Luther's own assessment of when that verse was brought to bear in his heart and in his mind by the Holy Spirit. I quote, When by the Spirit of God I understood these words, 
The just shall live by faith. I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God, end quote. Oh, yes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Sticking with Martin Luther, he wrote this in his book, The Theology of Martin Luther. Quote, I believe, therefore I speak. End of quote. I believe, therefore I speak. I hope that I can say the same. I hope that each of you can say the same. I believe, therefore I speak. In this gospel house, salvation house, which is big enough for more people than are presently in it, God's family will never outgrow this church. Will never outgrow this house. There's room. The next key passage that I want to take us to, the second of two, is chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. And Romans 3, 21 to 25, fits hand in glove with chapter 1, 16 and 17, the verses we've been expounding. Romans 3, 21 to 25. While we're still talking about the righteousness of God, the foundation of the house of salvation, we're still talking about Jesus Christ, of course, the door, the only door into this house of salvation. What is additional, needful information is that one, salvation is totally apart from law keeping. Two, Salvation was foretold by the law and the Old Testament prophets. Three, all have sinned, falling short of God's perfection. Four, grace justifies. Five, justification necessitates redemption. And sixth and last, justification demanded propitiation. Let me say that again. Additionally and needfully, according to Romans 3, 21 to 25, six things. Salvation is apart from law keeping. Salvation was foretold by the law and the Old Testament prophets. All have sinned, falling short of God's perfection. Grace justifies. Justification necessitates redemption. And six, justification demanded propitiation. Let me Expand these a little bit. There are four rich theological terms here. I want to take them one by one. First, the glory of God. I want you to see that in verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is his intrinsic, eternal perfections. Intrinsic means that God's perfections belong only to him. Intrinsic. Eternal means that God's perfections have no beginning and no ending. You can't find a time when God's perfections began. 
nor can you or will you find a time when God's perfections will end. God's perfections are eternal. God's perfections are intrinsic. They're his. God's intrinsic, eternal perfections is his glory. Is his glory. Perfections. God's attributes, his character qualities, his plan, his will, his decree. These are all parts of God's perfections that he has had forever, that he will have forever, that belong purely to him as God. And so a key term we first have to look at in verses 21 to 25 of Romans 3 is the glory of God, his eternal, intrinsic perfections. The second term is justified or Justification. Pick it up with me at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, there it is, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And I'll stop there. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified is God's work of declaring sinners righteous. Justification is God's work of declaring sinners righteous. The world's way and every other world religion's way except biblical Christianity is to self-justify. The Bible teaches, no, no, no. Justification is not a person's work by being religious. No, no, no. Justification is God's work of declaring sinners righteous. We could say acquitting the guilty. I don't know where you were when O.J. Simpson's verdict came down, but do you remember as... They waited for the pronouncement of the jury. Do you remember Simpson's face when the verdict was not guilty? I don't know what you feel about it, but I feel pretty confident that he was guilty. He was found to be civilly responsible for the deaths later in a court. But when O.J. Simpson, who was guilty, I believe, of those murders, was acquitted and declared to be not guilty. It was a picture of my sin before a holy God as I stood before the jury of heaven waiting for a pronouncement on my standing, knowing that I had sinned, knowing that I had broken the law, knowing that I was a spiritual criminal, And because of Jesus, God the Father declared me innocent. Justified me based on the finished work of his precious son, my Savior. Will you notice from verse 24 that this acquittal is secured freely by his grace. From the sinner's point of view, This 
being declared innocent, although being guilty, is secured freely by his grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. This justification, this being declared not guilty, although plainly we are guilty, is a gift of grace. It is freely given without cause. It is freely given to the believer in Jesus without merit. Nothing we could do would ever earn this acquittal from God. It is all of God's grace and not upon any of our merit. This acquittal, this justification, this unmerited favor towards sinners like us is given freely. Freely. It costs the Godhead everything, but it is free to us as believers. This is the great turning point. Verse 24 is the great turning point of the epistle to the Romans. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The turning point of the whole book of Romans. The pivot. The glory of God, his intrinsic eternal perfections. Justification to be God's work of declaring the guilty sinner innocent based on the free expression of God's grace as a gift. The third key term, redemption. Redemption. Redemption is God's work of purchasing a sinner out of the slave marketplace of sin and setting that sinner free into a life of grace. Let me say that again. Redemption, like justification, is God's work. None of us can say, well, I'm going to redeem myself. Redemption is God's work of purchasing a sinner out of the slave marketplace of sin and setting that sinner redeemed free to do God's will. Never to have to go back into the slave marketplace of sin again. Redemption Again, is God's work of purchasing a sinner. What was the purchase price? What did God have to lay down as a cost to him? What was the purchase price of God setting you and me free from the slave marketplace of sin, setting us free to do the bidding of the, of the Lord, never to have to return to the slave marketplace of sin? What was the cost, the price? First Peter 1. 18 and 19 tells us, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what it took for God to see you living futilely in the slave marketplace of sin, like Hosea's prostitute wife in the Old Testament on the slave block of sin naked with a life ruined. God looked at you and me, and he willingly sent his son to shed his blood that we could be purchased out of that slave marketplace of sin and redeemed. This brings us to the fourth term, 
the glory of God, God's intrinsic eternal perfections, justification, God's work of declaring the sinner innocent, redemption, God's work of buying us out of the slave marketplace of sin to set us free to do his will, never to have to return to the slave marketplace again. The fourth term is propitiation. Propitiation, verse 25, Romans 3, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, the foundation of the house. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What is propitiation? Propitiation is a sacrifice of atonement. Propitiation is a satisfactory payment. This is a very weak illustration, but I was at lunch today with Pastor and Mrs. Lee and our guest speaker and his wife and the international director of the Barnabas Fund, and we had a lovely time. Pastor Lee was talking about when he bought a transponder to be able to cross the bridge into Paradise Island. And he said when he paid the price of his transponder, they never charged him VAT. <laughs> they phoned him up and said, come in and pay the VAT. <laughs> you see, he had made a payment. They hadn't asked him for the VAT, but it turned out it wasn't a satisfactory payment according to the people collecting the money. They had to, he had to go back and pay the VAT. The propitiation of God's work of propitiation means he never has to go back and pay more than Jesus' blood for us. Yes, propitiation is a satisfactory payment. Christ is the only offering that satisfied holy God's wrath concerning our sin. 1 John 2, 2 talks of this as well. And he himself, Jesus, and he himself is the, not ah, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In potential, Jesus Christ shed blood in potential, is a satisfactory payment for all the world. I understand from Ephesians 1 and other texts that God has chosen and elected some for salvation. So effectively, the elect are the ones who will believe in Christ and have that efficacious payment of Christ's blood be the propitiation in actuality for their sins. What we're talking about here, when we talk about propitiation, is that we're talking about God's wrath By the way, God's wrath has fallen on hard times. It's never taught in the evangelical church in America. Doesn't fill the building. Doesn't pay the electrical bill. But if you don't understand God's wrath, you can't understand God's love. If you don't understand God's wrath, you don't understand Jesus' cross. If you don't understand God's wrath, you don't understand God's mercy and grace. And so propitiation is Jesus Christ's life's blood being the only necessary satisfactory payment to a holy God to assuage his wrath against sin. Oh yes, 1 John 2, 2. And he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Yes, we're talking here about God's wrath being satisfied by the death of his son, the shedding of his son's innocent blood. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Hebrews 2.17 also speaks to propitiation. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, the humanity of Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that, why, result, purpose, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, watch it, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. God the Son, uncreated, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, had no body until the incarnation, had no blood until the incarnation. But he was sent with the shadow of the cross coming across the manger where they laid him as a newborn baby. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ is our propitiation because he gave his blood and it satisfied God's righteous wrath. Additionally, God's son's blood removes our sins. It washes us clean, making unbroken relationship with holy God possible for those believing wretches who have found meaning and identity and forgiveness in Christ. And so propitiation is about satisfying holy God's wrath and restoring a good relationship between us and holy God. Can you imagine that if you were a woman, married woman, and your husband traveled frequently on business by airplane. Can you imagine that if that airplane crashed due to airline negligence in Atlanta and all on board that flight were killed, including this lady's husband? Can you imagine the litigation that would take place by all the families who were families of the loved ones who were killed in that plane crash, which was proven by study to be due to the negligence of the airline. Can you imagine the lawsuits? And can you imagine that as the class action suit against the airline was won in a court of law and financial restitution was paid to each family member whose loved one was killed in that particular crash, can you imagine that compensation would be just, but it would not restore relationship. I'll just pick an airline. This is hypothetical. Let's say it was Air Canada. And that woman's husband was killed on an Air Canada flight that crashed in Atlanta, and they gave her $5 million to compensate her for the loss of her husband due to their negligence. Do you think she's ever going to fly Air Canada even though she was given $5 million? Do you think she will recommend to any of her friends to fly Air Canada even though she was granted $5 million? You see, the propitiation of Jesus' blood was not just satisfaction of God's wrath. It was also an equally uh, establishment of a loving relationship between rebel sinners like us and holy God. 
And because Christ is our propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins, not only do we know the justification of God, God's work of declaring us righteous based on the finished work of his son, although we are guilty, but also we have a relationship and we want to tell others about this Savior. We have not only been forgiven, we are vocal about endorsing Jesus Christ and what he can do for a person. I trust you're still letting down your nets for a catch. Look at verse 25, would you? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Christ made propitiation so that God's justice would be demonstrated. God's perfectly just, of course, and he cannot and he will not wink at sin. God does not overlook our little sins. And provided we haven't done anything terrible, let us into heaven. That would be unjust. And equally, God doesn't weigh all of our good works on one side of a scale and all of our bad works on the other side of that scale. It isn't our, that our good works could outweigh our bad and then we'd be okay. That too would be unjust. And furthermore, God doesn't line up all the people who've ever lived on earth from the best to the worst and then divide by two. God doesn't do anything of the sort. He doesn't grade on the curve. People won't make some kind of midpoint cut when it comes to being sinners and get heaven by sinning less than the average human. That would be unjust. No, verse 23 is plain, and we know and love it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some people point to the general, current lack of judgment for sin to suggest that really sin isn't so bad. To this error, we say, sin was bad enough to put Jesus on the cross. The spikes through his hands and through his feet. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God's forbearance temporarily leaves sins unpunished. It's like this. It's like the misbehaving boy at Atlantis at the buffet on the Sunday lunch. He's there with his parents. He's there with his grandparents. He's there with friends from this church. And he knows that he can misbehave, be rude, be disobedient, because he's not going to get chastised right there at the table. And maybe he won't. Maybe dad will have forbearance. But when the boy gets home, the 
board of education might be applied to the seed of his understanding. It would be an error for sinners to see the delayed judgment of God for their sin as being God's compromised holiness and that their sin isn't that serious. Friends, one day, all sin will be paid for. It will either be paid for by Christ for the sinner or it will be paid for by the sinner, him or herself, in an eternity in a literal hell that we preached about not too long ago. All sin will be paid for. Either by Jesus Christ as you trust him, his person and work for your salvation, or by yourself. An eternal, conscious, tormented separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. All sin will be paid for. All sin is serious. When we leave this building tonight, may we all leave having by faith let Jesus pay for our sins on the cross. And may we all leave the building tonight blessed and vocal about the house called salvation that sits on the foundation of God's righteousness, that has one door into the house, the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that has gospel written all over the house. May we be vocal Vocal. As Martin Luther said, I believe, therefore I speak. I'm saved, I might put it, therefore I witness. I don't think that witnessing Christ is a spiritual gift that some people have, like preachers and missionaries and deacons, but I'm excused from. I believe, therefore I speak. The house is great. People are not in it until they walk through the door of Christ. I believe, therefore I speak. Verse 22 makes it clear that this salvation comes only to those who put their faith in Christ, to those who believe, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Pastor and author H.A. Ironside told about a new convert who during a testimony service at church with great joy in his heart the man related how he had been delivered from a life of sin. He gave the Lord Jesus Christ all the credit making it clear that he had done nothing to earn his salvation. The person leading the service didn't fully appreciate the truth that salvation is of grace through faith alone, apart from works. So the leader of the service, after it dismissed, went to this new convert who had given such a testimony and said, you seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. Didn't you do your part before God did his? (laughs) The new Christian jumped to his feet and said, oh yes, I did. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. He understood. He understood. And so believing is trusting in the person and the work of Christ, coming into that house of salvation through the one door that God has provided. To review and to conclude, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Please stand with me. Oh God, you are the author of our salvation from beginning to end and everything in between. It is according to your sovereign plan and incredible mercy and love and grace that you have made a way back for us to you, that you have made a bridge over the chasm of our evilness and our rebellion, that you have furnished a cross, an old rugged cross, where our Savior willingly died and shed his precious blood to pay the satisfactory payment for our sins. Oh God, we pray that we would be gripped by your salvation this week, that it would not be business as usual, but that we would ponder what you've done to make us your children that we would praise you for the cost of our salvation that you willingly paid, that you would remind us in worship of the house of salvation, the door of Jesus, the sign of the gospel, and oh, the forever sure and strong foundation of your righteousness. Thank you, Lord. It'll take all of eternity to thank you adequately. But may we start now. And we pray these things as your redeemed children. In our Savior's precious name, God's redeemed said, Amen. Thank you so much for coming. May the Lord bless you and use you this week.